Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the contrarians that speaks with an accent, am doing official screenplay coverage now. And if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turnaround is about two weeks and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show. Although it'll also be less funny. For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link. Your voice is beautiful. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Happy New Year from us here on The Contrarians. Uh, this is The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Uh, my name is Alex, and in the year of 2018, I am joined, as always, by my uh, cohort comrade, co-host, Julio. Julio, how are you doing? Doing great. It is the year 2018. Not 1982. No, but we'll take you there. <laughs> we were transported by this awesome movie, and uh, we're going we're gonna to do it justice. So, due to our scheduling conflicts and mismatches and mishaps and whatnot, we are filling in the blank with yet another bonus episode. We had our Christmas bonus episode of Mixed Nuts. So, we're bringing you a New Year's Eve, a New Year's Day, a New Year bonus episode with 200 Cigarettes, the 1999 MTV original film. Um, I would say starring, but you know we'd be here all day if I was listing all the stars that were in this. It's just... Uh... A who's who of uh of potential stars back in the day and now they are stars it's something that uh as we were watching it because the movie does that thing where it's just a black screen as the as the mm-hmm. names show up and i kept reading and reading and i was like this is amazing yeah but yeah these were not big names at the time i think they were known actors but they were not superstars i mean mm-hmm. we were commenting while we we're watching it how much how expensive it would be if you decided to use the same cast for a movie right now. Mm-hmm. And I miss that from back in the day where these big ensembles would just give opportunities to up-and-coming actors instead of something like Valentine's Day or New Year's Day. Now, like, the kind of ensemble movies that I make now where, well, no, it's just superstars Everyone, already. Yeah. You know, you already know who they are. Uh, at a mere 28%, this one was, we kind of had to pull this from the doldrums. Uh, but... First and foremost, before we go any further, I do need to apologize to uh, actress Angela Featherstone because in our last episode, I referred to her as Debbie Mazar. I thought I mistook. Wait, who's that, though? Uh, the Mixed Nuts? No, 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 no. In this, I thought Debbie Mazar was oh, 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 gotcha, gotcha. the Caitlin character. Right. Uh, so I, I do apologize for that for any of our listeners. Uh, but Julio, who liked this movie? 
Um, not many people, uh, but a lot of people hated it. We're gonna start with the hate quotes, okay? Because it's a it's a rotten movie according to the Tomato Meter. Starting with uh, Madeline Williams from Cinematter, who says a threadbare ensemble comedy struggling to be an '80s nostalgia film and failing. Roger Ebert from Chicago Sun-Times, he goes for the kill. He says, seeing a film like this helps you to realize that actors are empty vessels waiting to be filled with characters and dialogue. Jeez. <laughs> you just murdered the entire <laughs> cast. Well, joke's on you, Mr. Ebert, because most of them just... One of them is Batman currently. <laughs> uh, Chris Wagner from Dallas Morning News says, it feels more like a high-level acting workshop than a narrative film. Casey Affleck won an Oscar. Hey. How about that? Uh, e! Online, no no credit given there, says, for all the time spent gathering music appropriate to the era, the movie falls, the movie fails to capture anything important about the time. The time being the 80s. Uh, well, if you capture the music, then you got it. Yeah. That's all you need about the 80s. Uh, and the coke use. <laughs> The uh, Sun Thompson from the Washington Post says a twenty-something comedy with a brain-dead script, unflattering lighting, and sixteen performers in search of a scriptwriter. And finally, Juan Dudek from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel says as funny as a dark spot on your chest X-ray. Jesus, he's got the holiday spirit going. That's horrible. Uh, but it is New Year's Eve in New York City on nineteen uh, in 1981, excuse me. Uh, much like Cloud Atlas, this movie has several uh, stories that kind of intertwine with one another. Were you thinking, uh, we didn't discuss this, but I'm assuming we're, we're going to take the Cloud Atlas approach where we just uh, go story by story? Yeah. Because I couldn't tell you when they intercut. I no. Uh, so... The most uh, focused upon story throughout the entire movie is a dynamic between a character by the name of Kevin and Lucy, played by Paul Rudd and Courtney Love, respectively. Uh, it's Paul Rudd's birthday. He was just dumped by his girlfriend, who we later find out. Janine Garofalo. Exactly. Uh, and Courtney Love, I guess they're friends. They've kind of always been around each other. They're they're on the friend zone, I guess, mm -hmm. but not not bitter about it. So their story basically takes them down a path of she brings him out for New Year's Eve because she's looking to have some fun. He's just there to be angry Paul Rudd with amazing sideburns. Um, she tries to hook up with uh, a bartender who happens to be Batman, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, not Christian Bale. No. Um, and Ben Affleck, we have two characters in this that aren't assigned to one storyline, but we've, throughout all of them, being Ben Affleck and Dave Chappelle. Yes. Who Dave Chappelle is the all wise, all knowing cab driver who is the black. conscience of this film. <laughs> oh, so you're saying who is black? Because <laughs> there are two black characters uh, of note in this movie: Dave Chappelle, and mm -hmm. then um, what's the name of the one of the girls that's fighting? You know, the two girls that fight each other for for guys. That first oh, with the um, Irish guy, then they move on to Affleck, and then. Uh, Angela Featherstone, Caitlin, and friend. I don't. I never got the other girl's name. Well, she's the, she's the other black <laughs> character here in the movie, and it proves that it really is not offensive when you have uh, so few black characters, as long as they're very well developed. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what happens here. Chappelle, like you said, is the conscience of the movie, and then uh, this other black girl. She's just, you know, she's just another party girl here that that just 
doesn't put up with any of the stupid shit that the white girl is trying to pull on her. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Rudd's character is kind of an archetype of what would become of Paul Rudd. He looks exactly the same, but he's a bit more immature in this than we're used to seeing him. A, a little angrier, too, I think. Uh, I mean, we've seen angry Paul Rudd, but this is, I think, because he's younger. And just we just know this because of the... Uh, the way he speaks, not really because of the looks, because like you said, he looks the same, mm-hmm. minus the you know the sideburns are the thing that sticks out. But I think that there's a bit of that immaturity in his anger, as opposed to the mature anger that we've come to associate with uh, <laughs> with modern times Paul Rudd. Uh, we're here. He just spends the entire uh, movie in denial about the awesome sexual chemistry between him and Courtney Love, and. I mean, that's fine, but you keep waiting for him to catch up with the rest of the audience. You know, we know that this guy eventually he's going to lose the blindfold and realize that the love that he's been looking for, that he's been complaining that he doesn't have, has been in front of him the entire time. And conversely, Courtney loves on a path of self-discovery. Right. In terms of just, you know, trying to fill her emotional gaps with, you know, having sex with random dudes. She has this guy in front of her that she really cares for. Yeah, she. Uh, uh, it, it's a beautiful journey, uh, very appropriate to New Year's Eve, which is a time where you rediscover yourself, really. Reflect, redesign, rebuild. You you think about what's coming in the following year and what choices you want to make, what choices you don't want to make, and they both realize that the, the right choices each other. The second story in the film we're introduced to is that of Monica, played by Martha Plimpton, of course, of Goonies fame and just perennial 90s film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even if you don't think you know her, you know her. You've seen her in a movie or a TV show. Yeah, she's definitely – it took us about, excuse me, three minutes as a group to come up with the name for her. But everyone just – oh, that girl right away. Uh, She is hosting a New Year's Eve party. uh, And basically this is the the apex, the pinnacle of her year. Uh, She's prepared everything just so. Uh, But, of course, the issue is no one's showing up except for uh, her always there friend. And her ex-boyfriend. Who shows up halfway through the movie. Yes. Most of this is her just, you know, struggling with her own internal conflict. And I think what's great about her story is it turns a, a mirror on the audience on themselves saying, you know, you need to reflect on yourself. Yeah, but it's also uh, one of the most relatable uh, storylines in the movie because who hasn't thrown a party where you just don't know if people are going to show up? That is, anybody that's ever thrown a party has had that fear before people start showing up. And, and just imagine, that's that's the Martha Plimpton subplot here. It's just those hours before the party actually starts. Uh, and and that was, that's one of the things that I, I don't need to have been a young adult in the 80s to really relate to that. That happens uh, everywhere, all the time. And that is really another thing that just runs through the movie, which is that I think very smartly it shows you that Yes, the music might have changed and the clothing might have changed, but really our fears, our insecurities, and our dreams, they remain the same throughout the decades. Mm-hmm. So it may be the year 2017, well, 2018 now, uh, but we still share those those basic characteristics with these characters, even though we're almost three decades removed. Four decades, she is. Our third story that we're introduced to is Val, played by Christina Ricci. Uh, she is basically boy-hungry and party-hungry. She's looking for a good time on New Year's. She, She's got a righteous accent. She does. She has an amazing New York accent. She has a friend in tow and basically starts off 
in total disarray, doesn't know where they're going. Part of the film that ages poorly because, you know, this is before smartphones and they also don't have the ability to just call and see, you know, exactly where they're going. She needs a dime. When, when somebody, when her friend's like, hey, you just make a call and she's like, do you have a dime? <laughs> but this was Christina Ricci stepping into her big girl shoes, so to speak. Because, no more Adam's family. Yeah, this is removed from that. She's, you know, 17, 18. She's ready to conquer the world and does so by taking on quite a risque role. Yeah, if you were not ready to see uh, Christina Ricci make out uh, with a future Oscar winner, then do not watch this movie <laughs> because that's going to happen. Fourthly, we have Kate Hudson, uh, Oscar nominee, believe it or not. Uh, I have to remind myself every year that that I happened. I believe it. I just, like I was telling you, I just watched her and uh, I wish I was here. Or is it just wish I was here? I, I don't know. I don't know. I wish Zach Braff made more movies. <laughs> Kate Hudson is Kate Hudson here. She is basically everything we came to love her about at the turn of the millennium. Adorable Kate Hudson. Uh, in many ways, I think if Chappelle is the conscience of the movie, Kate Hudson is the heart. Mm-hmm. And I think she's also a, a very relatable uh, character, much like Martha Plimpton taps into her fear of throwing a party and nobody showing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate Hudson taps into her fear of just being completely inadequate, uh, being surrounded by cool people and being mm-hmm. the one that doesn't fit in. And she is, uh, uh, she plays it wonderfully. Uh, physically, because mm-hmm. she's the queen of the pratfalls in this movie. She is just the klutz. She is the the shimp, the curly of the crew. Yes, uh, and uh, but also emotionally, because uh, you know her big deal here is that she's meeting uh, Bob Sugar, Jay Moore, <laughs> uh, whom she. You beat me to it. I was going to say if we had one character that symbolized our hope and innocence and just lovability as humans in Kate Hudson. We have the smarmy, hateable, egotistical side of things in Jay Moore. But this is, but it's the movie is really clever because they don't present him as as a terrible person right away. I was going to say at first, right? You see him through Kate Hudson's eyes, so you're thinking, oh, okay, it was Jay Moore playing against type. <laughs> he might be a good guy, uh, and then it's only very slowly you find out what's really going on with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is, uh, I think that. Her, the way she behaves around him is everybody's nightmare. When mm-hmm. you really like someone, but you can't help but make every bad decision around them, every bad movement around them, to where you just this is hopeless. Uh, so again, very relatable. So come to find out, we'll, we'll go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole with this Kate Hudson storyline. Um, she is a massive klutz, and she's just very nervous. We come to find out around Jay Moore because. The night before, she had lost her virginity to him, and she does believe that she's in love with him. And Jay Moore reacts to this. This is where he becomes Jay Moore. Yeah, I think that there's a there's a middle ground before he goes on full Jay Moore. Before he goes on full Bob Sugar, there's there's a moment where you just you just recognize yourself in a way. You know, there's that very specific uh, moment in the life of a of a male where you might have to confront. The reality of having been someone's first, mm-hmm. and and Jay Moore on New Year's Eve he received these news, and I didn't think that he was an asshole right off the bat, you know, from the way he reacted. He seemed pretty stunned, 
and then he seemed curious, which seemed like a human reaction. Yeah. It's just that later on... He's trying to hail her a cab, and when he finds out that, he's like, okay, hold on now. I need more information about this. Yes, because we're all human. We're all insecure. And he really, what it boils down to, at least at first, is just he just wants to know why did she pick him. Which shows a little bit of humility. He doesn't think that he's very special. I kind of get mm-hmm. the feeling that uh, the Ben Affleck character wouldn't have thought twice if no. she told him, oh, you were my first. And he'd be like, well, of, qu- of course you slept with me because why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. I'm going to be Batman someday. Yeah. Ben Affleck's on like five dates in this entire movie in the course of one night. Because, yeah, the this movie happens over the course of, I think, like five hours. Right. Courtney Love, the Cindy character, is just getting progressively more and more drunk. Uh, she does... We just mentioned Ben Affleck and his, you know, his persuasion throughout this film. She's pining for him while Paul Rudd just continues to sulk. Uh, they take off to a local diner. Uh, at this point is when the chemistry, not only between the characters, but the actors is palpable. Um, I mean, I bought this. I, I bought it. Uh, it was it was the setting because, you know, they're eating pancakes at a 24-hour diner. Mm-hmm. That could have been Kirby Lane. That could have been IHOP. I mean, it's just that that kind of stuff happens. And uh, and they have a pretty frank, honest conversation about where they are in life as far as uh, Paul Rudd just being an angry person that just picks the wrong women mm-hmm. to sleep with. And, uh, and Corny Love being uh, just kind of a carefree girl that mm. hasn't found anybody to care for her because the scene at the diner everybody. starts off with her saying she's lost track of how many guys she's had sex with yeah and then she tells paul rudd that he, he was a cuck he was being cuckolded we never find out if when she says jack she means bob sugar right because i Mm-mm. it was there's so many characters here that's hard to keep track of all the names uh, I, I i apologize i should have prefaced with that it it's an A-list cast, so I'm just inclined to refer to them by their names. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think uh, I think Jay Moore's name in the movie is Jack, and then she, Courtney Love, mentions to Paul Rudd that his girlfriend Janine Garofalo had slept mm-hmm. with Jack. We don't see Jay Moore and Rudd on screen at the same time. It would be like uh, Heat when De Niro and Pacino are on the screen at the too same. Much. It would just be too, too much, much for the '90s. It would be like uh, the the cell phone scene in The Departed. <laughs> It would just—it's something we wouldn't be able to handle. The film just bursts into flames. <laughs> just brain wrap every single time. Yep. So really, but that—that that sequence ends at the diner. It ends with this—the uh, kind of proposal that you would say only happens in movies, mm-hmm. but really, it also happens in like every guy's mind, mm-hmm. which is where like where a girl says, "You know what? Why don't we have sex?" Mm-hmm. And and Paul Rudd, he tries to play cool, but you know that he's into it. Uh, he's been sulking the entire night, and, he, and now he's just kind of like grumpily saying, "Okay, well, if I have to." Despite you know looking exactly the same, this was you know almost twenty years ago. This was youthful Paul Rudd. And he he was up for the the task, no pun intended. Yeah, and it's it's. I think that it's a, a credit to them, both of them as performers, Courtney Love and Paul Rudd, that they managed to make it convincing that they wouldn't just successfully have sex in a bathroom stall. Mm-hmm. Because that sexual tension has been there since they were sharing a cab at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet they managed to make it believable that they are having trouble having sex once they actually go down to the, to the bathroom stall to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're having trouble ripping their clothes off and then they're just kind of giggling. They can't even make out properly. <laughs> like that doesn't – I mean I would have trouble believing it from anybody else. But they're such good actors that I, I, I bought it. And this is where uh, Ellie, the aforementioned Junian Garofalo, comes in and finds them attempting to have sex. 
And you would think New York City is a pretty big city. How did she come across this? But quickly with a line of dialogue, we're, we learned that it, it was their diner. That screenwriting 101, you know, just <laughs> establish those things right away. It's like in uh, Thank You for Smoking when uh, uh, the Rob Lowe character is like, oh, you just fix this with one line. Oh, thank God we invented the blah, blah, blah. That's it. <laughs> fixed. The, the Avengers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just one line of dialogue. All, oh, that's all you need. So it's Joss Whedon for you. There, there you go. Val, Christina Ricci, the, and her friend on the other side of town still trying to find you know a party, a good time, something to do. They discover that they're being followed. And this is officially when we're introduced to Tom, our Oscar winner of the bunch here, um, in Casey Affleck, accompanied by his buddy Dave, played by uh, Guillermo Diaz. You get double the Affleck in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they're actually – no, they're, they know where they're going. Uh, Christina Ricci, because the entire time they're talking about a party – and uh, well, uh, spoiler, everyone's heading to the same place, right? But is it a spoiler? Because I kind of got the feeling from the movie that it was pretty obvious that everybody was gonna end up at the mm-hmm. at the party at Martha Plimpton's party. Mm-hmm. She's freaking out for nothing because we all know that there's a whole cast of of Oscar nominees and winners, exactly. They're on their way, they're just you know taking their sweet time because they have issues to work through. But yeah. we know that it's gonna happen. I thought that I don't know, maybe I was giving the screenwriter too much credit, but obviously not because you know that's what happens. Uh, but I was 100% sure that everybody was gonna end up at Martha Plimpton's uh place, mm-hmm. and so yeah, Christina Ricci's constantly talking about the party they're going to. Uh, Paul Rudd and Corny Love are talking about a party they're going to. Uh, Jay Moore and and Kate Hudson mention it. They're heading to a party. Uh, Caitlin, Angela Featherstone, uh, and her friend are constantly referring to the party that they're going to. Um, oh yeah, we haven't talked about them yet. Well, let's let's finish with Christina Ricci and Casey Affleck. Mm-hmm. So they link up, and Christina Ricci just starts hanging out with Casey Affleck, and they uh, Casey Affleck takes him to a punk bar. Said he's got a package he needs to deliver. It clearly appears to be drugs of some sort. Um, I I don't know. I really just couldn't get over the novelty of baby Casey Affleck in mascara playing a, playing a punk. Yeah, uh, yeah. She uh, he looked like a kid who saw Sid and Nancy in middle school and then wanted to be Gary Oldman as Sid Vicious for Halloween. Yeah, he he gets he is he gets a character which is more that I can say about his uh, brother here, Ben Affleck. But that's by design, and I think it's actually perfect because Ben Affleck at first sight. You think, wow, this is probably the most vanilla Affleck you've seen ever. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's just coasting by uh, on his looks. He's just there, kind of like just standing pretty and doesn't get many lines and doesn't really get to do much other than dance kind of clumsily. But then you realize, well, that's because he's meant to be a blank slate mm-hmm. because he's everybody's object of desire. So they're supposed to project their fantasies onto him and that's what corny loves us that's what the other two girls do it's just uh i think it takes a lot of restraint for uh, an actor uh, of ben affleck's charisma to dial it down so much so that everybody else can benefit he i really would like to know when this is filmed and this is you know borderline real talk because he was a child in this movie this is yeah like i told you while we're watching this is mole rats ben affleck it's not even uh uh because when we did uh, Reindeer Games, we mentioned that he looked really young in that mm-hmm. one. But this is just – he looks like he just got out of acting school. Which is quite possible. But with Casey Affleck, uh, Guillermo Diaz basically is just there as the friend. He doesn't even play any impact in the finale of the film. He he plays a joker basically 
and I, by that I mean the DC character because he's wearing a a clown wig. I was, gonna, then, I was gonna say, did he die during the filming of the? <laughs> no, and then well, that was rude. His 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 big punchline at the end is that he because he passes out at some point, they leave him behind, and then he wakes up next to a homeless person, or did he wake up next to a character that we knew? Uh, I don't think it was a character we knew, but it was a, a female, and that that Just was all he needed drum, to be happy. Okay. Yeah. Our other concurrent uh, running storyline is between friends Bridget and Caitlin, uh, Nicole Ann Parker, and the aforementioned Angela Featherstone. They're basically just hyper-competitive to one-up each other. Right. They start with – they're hanging out with the Irish guy who's dating one of them. He's Mm -hmm. dating – one of them <laughs> <laughs> and they ditch him because they just mm-hmm. he turns out to be super lame and uh the one that's been dating them dating him says that he's terrible in bed and at the time you're just like oh well obviously they were not a match they mm-hmm. were not sexually compatible uh later we find out that no actually he just sucks all the time in every bed and the irony of that is he's an artist that's obsessed with vaginas yes uh, so so first they're hanging out with him. They dumped him. Then they set their sights on Affleck. They hang out with Affleck for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they dump Affleck because Affleck – and the most lines he has in the movie, he kind of – Which I fucking adored this. He's this big hunk of a man in the film. And then when he actually sits down to talk, he just wants to talk about Reaganomics <laughs> and the housing market and law school. Brilliant writing. Yeah, yeah, and then and then he makes a move to try to just talk them into a three way, and that's when that's when they split. Um, I've never been on a date with two girls before. <laughs> that's that's great, great acting, great delivery by Affleck. Uh, and then once they're done, because they're also on their way to the party, and uh, they end up on Chappelle's cab, mm-hmm. and, and that's when they realize that wow, their friendship is really strained by the fact that they keep competing. Uh, for these men, one can make the argument that Chappelle is the angel over your shoulder and Affleck is the devil over your shoulder in this, because they are the only two characters that run through all the storylines. That's true, and then and then these two friends end up with those two. One mm-hmm. of them chooses uh, the angel, and one of them chooses the the devil. Which you know, jumping ahead because the movie has no problems in doing so, uh, we do get a, a biracial finale. Right. Yeah. Uh, the. The black girl hooks up with Affleck, mm-hmm. and the white girl hooks up with Chappelle. Yes, and it's—I I was pleased with this. I, I was fine with that too. I, I was like, you know what? It, that makes sense. 1982 was more evolved than 2018 has been. So, so we catch up with Jack and Kate Hudson at a local Indian restaurant. Uh, Jay Moore, Jack, has just become infatuated, obsessed with her ever since he found out that. Uh, she had lost her virginity. He's basically in his own ego. He's trying to figure out why it is that women are so infatuated, infatuated with him. And Kate Hudson, bless her heart, just you know, kind of just lost in the shuffle here. She's doing her best, but she doesn't really understand what's going on. Right, uh, and then she has another great comic uh, sequence when she bites into a giant pepper mm-hmm. or something, and then that sends her spiraling down, pratful after pratful. She bumps into a waiter. She knocks down a tray of food. Uh, it, she ends up running into the bathroom uh, to hide for the second time in the movie because she already did it once before when they were playing pool at the bar. Why did we never get this Kate Hudson again? But we did. Is and off-Broadway. <laughs> I don't know. 
is because you fuckers didn't go see this. We never got comedic actress Kate Hudson after this. I she could have been the the Melissa McCarthy for a new generation. I, it might have been her choice. I, and honestly, to be fair, I haven't watched her movies with uh, Matthew McConaughey. There might be more of that there. Uh, what is it? Uh, Fool's Treasure? Fool's Gold? Oh, God. I was thinking of How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. That, that too. Fool's you know, gold. I own that movie, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, and I just, I've never felt emotionally ready to watch it. Kate Hudson was nominated for an Oscar. That was a fair nomination, though. That was, that, that was, was yeah. No, I'm sorry. We're just, we're, we're getting way ahead of our, we're jumping millennia ahead of what we're discussing. <laughs> this here. is young Kate Hudson. This is ready to tackle the world, Kate Hudson. So she, she abandons, uh, Jay Moore. Mm-hmm. And that's when he's by himself. That's when we finally realize that he is a douchebag. Yes, because he runs into well, some girl walks past him, recognizes him, and then we get we get the idea that he she slept with him, and then he has been avoiding her since. Mm-hmm. And then his reaction to that, and the way that he gets paranoid, looking around for other people that might know him, uh, gives you the 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 idea. It just confirms that he's actually kind of a player. Yeah. Right and yeah, he what he tries to do is get uh, Kate Hudson out of the bathroom and then take her away just to make sure that none of these women that know him can you know infect her brain type thing. He he treats this as a science experiment almost, which yeah. is how I view Jay Moore's real life operation. His career is just so weird that mm. that's really what he does all the time. It's like whenever something starts getting getting uncomfortable, he'll just like. <laughs> Take a 90-degree turn. Now I'll host a sports show. <laughs> hard left, Jay Moore. Coming up on a turn. Hard left. Uh, for only her second scene in the film of actual acting, we do see her later on on a um, uh, still frame and also uh, a static shot. But Janine Garofalo has a scene here where she's in the cab with Dave Chappelle, the conscience of the film. And this is where she really perseveres because she, you know. She doesn't fall for it. Exactly. Dave Chappelle is, I wouldn't say tempting her, but basically testing her. He knows what he's doing. He is the angel of this film after all. Uh, She's just obsessed and uh, overwrought with emotion about Paul Rudd trying to have sex with Courtney Love. Despite the fact that she broke up with him, and but she's only human, Alex. I mean, that's well, humans are walking contradictions. So of course, it if was I shaker. broke up with Paul Rudd the next day, I would absolutely want him back. Well, yeah, especially after you see him with Corny Love. That's like, man, you and moved especially up. when you see him with those sideburns. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, on New Year's Eve, especially when and, and she mm-hmm. kind of makes a point to tell him and tell everybody that she's by herself. Janine Garofalo is going to this party by herself. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that. When Chappelle propositions her uh, in a very direct way, to it, it, you're right. It's a test. It's kind of uh, uh, throwing a bucket of cold water in her face and just making her wake up and see and tell her, "Listen, are you really this desperate for for connection?" Or because if so, right? Because if not, you know, you should probably do something else mm-hmm. instead of being here whining to a to a cabbie. And uh, and that really gets her into motion. She gets off the cab and goes to the party. And one thing it, you it struck a chord in my brain when you were speaking there about uh, that I do appreciate about this movie is you know um, it may seem that we're getting lost in all the twists and turns of these different stories, but the easiest route you could take for a movie this way in New York City would be the ball dropping. 
and you you had mentioned you know the, the the hour at hand the time was ticking. Not once in this entire film is Times Square or the ball drop. Oh no no no! This which is, I really appreciate because this this is a movie for New Yorkers by New Yorkers. This is the untold story uh, that doesn't get to see uh, the light in most Hollywood uh, films. You're right. There's no mention of the ball dropping. This is just like the the underground punk scene and the and the parties that are just the house parties that nobody features anywhere else the martha plimpton parties Mm -hmm. that you would think they suck but then really what this movie does uh by the time it arrives at the end is to show you that those are the most awesome parties yeah those are the parties where everybody gets laid yeah absolutely and where the movie comes in you know in a scene that we are desperate for now or a scenario i should say is paul rudd and ben affleck competing for the love of a female you know we're, we're winding down here and Courtney Love gets her wish. The Lucy character gets her wish. She goes on a date with the bartender, Ben Affleck, and Paul Rudd's having none of it. He comes in with flowers, and basically, again, Ben Affleck gets left at the altar, so to speak. Yeah, and it's not just the flowers. He he, he kind of... Paul Rudd gives uh, Courtney Love his version of the You Complete Me mm-hmm. speech uh, that ends with, like, I want to have sex with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's awesome, too, because he walks in on her singing, and... You know how I feel about karaoke scenes and movies. I think that they're just like easy, easy laughs. I, I think they're kind of lazy. But here, it works. Courtney Love is an actual singer, so she does the song justice. She's not singing badly mm-hmm. for for laughs. She's actually just performing. And Paul Rudd's reaction to seeing her sing, uh, it's believable. It, you know, I, I I completely bought it that that's when he decided that that he wanted this to happen. Of course. Because uh, we still had about half an hour of movie left, <laughs> it wasn't going to be that easy. That easy. Uh, it's not. It leads to a fall apart between the two of them because they go back to the same. I don't know why, but they go back to the same diner and and the same bathroom, the stall. same bathroom stall, and they're attempting to you know uh, make magic, look into the face of God all over again. And um, he looks back and he says, "Not now." <laughs> and she storms out and basically has this epiphany that you know. Having sex randomly is not for her any longer. And then Paul Rudd has, you know, his, I guess this would be the Oscar clip of the film. Right. He right. has the breakdown in the diner. Yeah. She she tells him one of the worst things you can tell somebody uh, that's trying to have sex with you, which is, I, I opened my eyes and I saw your face. <laughs> that, the Weinstein special. Yeah. I'm sorry. It just I just couldn't. Even if she wanted after that, I just wouldn't be able to do it. My pride would just keep me from getting an erection after that. And especially, man, had Paul Rudd at that point. That just had to be shattering. This was clueless era Paul Rudd. Yeah, he was not ready for that sort of rejection. He was not. Um, and as things are winding down, you know, at this point we become aware that everyone's heading to uh, Zion, to the party. Yeah. Yeah, we get this awesome musical montage where everybody that's been scattered all over the city. Well, I guess uh, so. The the Jay Moore and Kate Hudson thing also comes to a head mm-hmm. because she's finally had enough of his shit. Yeah, she's smart enough to figure out that he's just being really needy and egotistical about the whole thing. Takes she, her a while, but she gets there. Well, I think that she implies that she figured it out, but she was putting up with it mm-hmm. because maybe he wasn't that bad. But then eventually she figures it out, or she she has enough, and she just lays it on him and even though she just has another fall where she actually falls on dog shit uh she looks terrible she's still she's done with him Mm -hmm. and and she leaves him uh but she doesn't go home to change 
She just goes straight to the party. Because she's been through enough tonight. She's not going right. to do that shit. She's just, if she's putting up with this shit, everybody's putting up with this shit that happens to be on her back. And then we get uh, my favorite scene in the movie with uh, the competitive friends that we had mentioned earlier, Bridget and Caitlin, in the taxi with the conscience of the film, Dave Chappelle, where they're arguing over men, and he tells the story of him and his buddy who fell in love with the same girl. Uh, he goes to a, a diner, sees them both there. He's sitting there seething with rage. The opposite gentleman, his former friend, ends up choking to death at the table. Just a, a great parable for life and, you know, the what's important and what's not. That is the Chappelle Oscar clip. Yes. That is like a nice monologue. A, a solid, like, chunk of like three to five minutes. Yes. Uh, perfectly delivered. Um, and at that time, I was... Uh, and really, I wrote down, I was, does the Chappelle character grow up to be the character from uh, Collateral? <laughs> Because that wisdom, uh, and you know, life gives you your ups and downs, so right now he's on top of the world, but mm-hmm. you know, 10, 15 years later, he could be the Jamie Foxx character looking at his uh, at the picture behind his uh, rearview mirror, mm-hmm. kind of like on the downside of life, feeling a little beaten down. It, it happens to all of us. It does. Um, but he had this night, and for Dave Chappelle's career, he had this moment. <laughs> Unfortunately, this would be it. After this movie, he did not go on to do anything after this. Um, but all things end at the party, Martha Plimpton, Monica's party. Um, she unfortunately passes out before this drowning her sorrows on a bottle of whiskey, one over her failed party and two, uh, her ex-boyfriend, the Irish gentleman we had mentioned earlier, uh, uh, Eric was the character's name, basically just a bad interaction with him and also her best friend ended up shacking up with them. She misses her entire party. And- she, yeah. Which I, that's on that side, I can tell you that I that was not relatable. I've never been that drunk to miss a party that I threw, mm-hmm. but I've been drunk enough to miss chunks. Yeah, so I can I can imagine. Well, what this did was it set the groundwork for the Hangover because everything you want to see we don't, but before the end credits we get it in picture form. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Ed Helms, Bradley Cooper, Zach Galifianakis. You can thank 200 cigarettes. You for, can. For laying the groundwork. And during the course of this party, somehow what we come to find out is Courtney Love and Paul Rudd reconciled. I mean, that was an easy one. You, you knew that that, that was, that was going to happen. That's why I mentioned it first. Yeah. Uh, Jay Moore, karmically, all his egotism came to, back to bite him in the ass as he, uh, as the movie says, not my words, he hooks up with an underaged uh, Christina Ricci who immediately has fallen in love with him. Right, because that's the thing. That's the thing that he tells Kate Hudson, that every time a girl hooks up with him, the next day they're in love with him. And he's like, he's cursed. He's cursed with just the inability to have casual sex because Mm -hmm. they just take it too seriously. So, of course, he ends up hooking up with uh, Christina Ricci. And uh, it's hilarious because uh, statutory rape is a great punchline. Apparently, (laughs) for this. I mean, it was the 80s. It was. Uh, Gene Garofalo, the Ellie character, ends up hooking up with uh, Elvis Costello, who has a cameo early in the movie, but it's literally just a walk-by cameo. Right. It's like if you hadn't pointed out that that was Elvis Costello, I would have just thought that was an extra that looked like Elvis Costello. But that's where you're wrong because it was laying the groundwork for Gene Garofalo to hook up with him at the end. Right, right. And it is the real Elvis Costello because then you see him later in the Polaroids. It's not like they they just pull a fast one because you don't really see him in bed with her, right? You just hear him talk. Yeah. 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 And then she goes, Elvis? Yeah, and she gets really excited. Yeah. And then 
That's uh, a, that's a step up. I mean, I like Paul Rudd and all, but really, if you end up with you're Elvis not right, Allison. <laughs> no. Uh, and then finally, the the power scene of the film, the you know where the all the money went, the six million dollar budget for this film went to this one scene at the end where somehow throughout the the scope of the evening, Casey Affleck and Kate Hudson have fallen for one another. Yeah, he somehow he disconnected from uh from the underage Christina Ricci. And uh, and f- fell into the arms of the most lovable, innocent, cutest uh, character in the movie. Which, shoot, at the time, Christina Ricci was either 17 or fresh 18. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure how it happened. But even in that brief moment, I mean, Casey Affleck and Kate Hudson, you can see where all those Oscar nominations came from. That was That's all you need. I mean, because Casey Affleck, for all his punk exterior, he's really a softy in there. And, and so he plays off. He treats Kate Hudson uh, like a gentleman the way that Jay Moore never did. Mm-hmm. So it is perfect. He's he's such a nice guy that he never even noticed that she had dog shit on her back until the very end when he hugs her. And then he doesn't pull away. He's just like, is that dog shit? And she's like, yeah. And then they make out a little more. And then we get our voiceover from Dave Chappelle confirming that he was the conscience of the film. Uh, And our series of pictures from the night before, which basically explain how everyone got to where they end up. Yeah, but it's also really smart because, you know, you would think you never see the the party. You just see the after uh, aftermath of the party. Mm -hmm. And and that's really it kind of goes to tell you that the destination is really not important. It's mm-hmm. the journey to get to the destination. Really, what happened at the party, it was just, it didn't matter. It, these characters were affected by the road they took to get to the party. Uh, except for Martha Plimpton, who, you know, we get to see her when she wakes up. And yeah. she realizes that she had an awesome party and she just... But that is somehow, with all the characters that have been led to that party, you, you realize that the the filmmakers wanted you to leave with wondering... And, you know, that was part of her greater destiny. We just don't know what that was because we never got 300 cigarettes. Right. Uh, or even 150 cigarettes, which is the movie about the party. Maybe the, <laughs> the 30 minute short that shows you the party. Uh, yeah, that is. It also rings true because most New Year's Eve's you will miss chunks of that that evening. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that you would miss a chunk, the chunk of the party here. Yeah. You know, it's it just feels appropriate for a New Year's Eve part, uh, movie. So that ties up the the enigma of a film that is 200 cigarettes. Um, I think I'm ready to move on to real talk if you are. Well, let's do some real talk. Let's, let's smoke some cigarettes. The other thing I was thinking, you know, 90% of the characters in this movie got lung cancer by 2000. <laughs> hey, man, man, you need to relax. I mean, I've been listening to you, brother. You're way too uptight, man. You got to look around you. Everybody's having fun out here. They drinking, they fighting, they pissing on the streets. It's New Year's Eve. They loving the lady. You know, lady go out on New Year's Eve. She ain't trying to carry a burden, man. She trying to let one go. You wanna know how I succeed? Not really, no. I would tell you what I do. See, first of all, bro, you gotta smile. Like this here. Do that a lot. See, bitches love that kind of thing. They love happiness, right? Now, number two. Number two, this is very important. Don't talk about death. Everybody knows they're gonna die, baby. Nobody wanna hear from you. You dig? And number three, and this is going to get you some booty right here. You listening? You feel me? Music makes booty spin round, baby. Mm. Mm. 
Okay, we are recording for Real Talk. All right. Uh, man, what a perplexing film. Um, while, why, why did people smoke so much? Well, 200 cigarettes. Okay, Julio, you've never been a smoker like myself. Uh, which, you need to tell me, 200 cigarettes, that's just like, that's a regular New Year's Eve. No, uh, uh, I don't smoke nearly as much as I used to, but I used to be a pretty heavy smoker. Uh, carton of cigarettes is 200 cigarettes. Courtney Love gives Paul Rudd a carton of cigarettes in the first part of the movie. The first oh, scene, that's what she gave him. First scene of the movie, excuse me, first part. I'm talking <laughs> like I haven't done 50-plus episodes of a film podcast. I thought she gave him a bottle of... Uh, like liquor or something. Liquor or something. Yeah. It was just... I... Um, so even while we were doing the first part, I was pulling shit up on my laptop. Just, what a fascinating movie. The, the woman who directed it uh, only directed one other movie. Something called the Con Artist in 2010. That her name was uh, Risa uh, Barnon Garcia. I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. And then was written by um, Shayna Larson, who never wrote anything else. It was all she had in her was 200 cigarettes. And my God, you want to talk about something that uh, dates this film? The budget was only six million. <laughs> Can you imagine a movie with Ben Affleck now that would be just $6 million? Uh, Affleck just did the movie for free. He just wanted those uh, credits to finish his uh, – to graduate. He, he – um, the only bit of trivia I really found about this was he did actually do it um, in hopes that him being in it would gain more attention for people to see it because his brother was in it. And he, he didn't know he was in it as much of it as he thought he was. Like he thought he had a much smaller part than he did. Um, box office return. It looks like it just broke even with around six million for that. Um, who liked it? And let's let's hear what they said. An MTV film. It uh, is. It wasn't Joe's apartment. That was the first MTV film. Um, well, very few Red Tomatoes, but Mick LaSalle, LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle says a succession Mickey. of Mickey. <laughs> Mickey, I'm coming to get you. <laughs> Uh, he says, a succession of pointed little moments, nicely written by Shanna Larson and acted with comic assurance and sensitivity. Uh, Chris Hewitt, St. Paul, from St. Paul Pioneer Press, says, deft casting, boffo tunes, and a snappy script provide 200 cigarettes with unfiltered fun. Boffo tunes. Like unfiltered. Uh, Kevin Maynard from Mr. Showbiz says, a frequently hilarious, exuberant ensemble comedy. Phil Villarreal from the Arizona Daily Star says an underrated, entertaining lark of a Tarantino-esque film. How does Quentin Tarantino feel about this? Was he inspired by 200 Cigarettes when he was doing uh, Inglorious Bastards, maybe? Uh, I am sure Tarantino... Loves this shit. Yeah. Because he, he likes Green Lantern. Well, no. What was that? Uh, that Perfect, I think, was the name of the movie. Uh, the... John Travolta, Jamie Lee Curtis movie. Are you familiar with that at all? No. From like the early to mid eighties. It might be late eighties, but it's this just dog shit jazzer size movie. And Quentin Tarantino has like said on record that it's very misunderstood and like a great film. Cause he he does like some shit. It's like when you're Tarantino, you can just say stuff like that and I remember him like fawning over Green Lantern in twenty eleven right. and then saying Drive was okay. Well, Drive is just okay. Well, he got that right. But um, 
And um, then finally, before we move any further on that, I will concede that Good Time is a better version of Drive. Oh, well, now I have to watch Good Time. Yeah. Good. That was an excellent argument to get me to watch it. Um, it but there's a, yeah, there's one final quote that's more ridiculous than the Tarantino-esque quote. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Rob Blackwelder from Spliced Wire says, There are no wasted scenes, no busted jokes, and a number of comedic crescendos that will send you roaring over the back of your chair. Was he watching a different movie? Did he get paid by the studio? <laughs> Is that MTV Money speaking on this quote? <laughs> That was Jesse Camp, the winner of their VJ contest, <laughs> reviewing this. Um, so one thing that sticks out is how much faith they had in it. It's a New Year's Eve movie that was released on February 26th <laughs> of 1999. So that answers that because Reindeer Games was fall of 2000. But even still, Ben Affleck looks at least seven years younger in this than he does in Reindeer well, the Games. The backlash... That must have gotten, you know, from this movie. That just aged him. Now, before we go any further, you got to realize watching this movie in 2017 or when you hear it, 2018, it's interesting for sure. <laughs> but at the time, this is a bunch of no names. We did not Which, know that within five years, Dave Chappelle would have ruled the world. <laughs> right. That, But that makes it even... Uh, Less remarkable. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine. It's like, like the, Empire Records to a certain extent. Empire Records has moments. It's, it's, it's charming. It's a much though. better movie. Than it, this. Exactly. It has this one. I just don't. It feels like it's so stretched out. That was my main problem, and I remember why I quit watching it the first time I tried to watch it like a long time ago because it just felt like it was going nowhere. Uh, you know, they they establish two characters. They give him like a problem. They do like this is the situation, and then. Through most of the movies, just a repeat of the same conversation over and over. See if it, it was like if it was just Courtney Love and Paul Rudd, and they did like blackface and Asian face, and you know they did the Cloud <laughs> Atlas motif. There you go. What's so weird about it is it's only 140, or excuse me, an hour and 40 minutes. It's 100 minutes, but my God, it, it feels so long. Yeah, it, it's. Well, I think that a lot of it is just not funny. That's why that guy that uproariously throwing your back. <laughs> like, how? What, what were you watching? How, were you drunk? Yeah. It's, it's really not. Like Martha Plimpton, she's a fine comedian. She's great. But here, she's she, she's she got nothing. I mean, mm -hmm. she's just waiting for people to show up to her party and being anxious about it. And she just hits the same note over and over and over again through the entire movie. Uh, the same thing with, with Paul Rudd, who I love, but here it's just, he's just bitter and angry and moping around. He just does that for the entire movie, except for the brief moments where he connects with Courtney Love and they're about to have sex. In a lot of ways, I feel like, um, I remember my, <laughs> I'm going to come off as so pretentious, just the, I have a question and a comment. Um, <laughs> my original review of American Hustle, to kind of preface... Oh, we're, we're, we're jumping ahead. Yeah, ...was I said, that would have been an amazing like 20-minute short film. Right. Like, uh, I feel that way about this. You could have done like a short film where these, what is it, four or five stories, you give them five minutes each... And it develops it the same way because that's basically it. It's five minutes of material stretched yes. 20 minutes for each story. I think unlike Cloud Atlas, this one doesn't benefit from the cutting back and forth between the stories. I think it would work much better as a collection of short stories that are just begin and end, you know, and then you move on to the next one and then you end with the party. Well, even so, like we just watched it and when we're trying to like we can't keep like our shit 
straight about what was going on just when we we're doing the first part of this. Yeah, but but also because there's some. It's so little. It, it, and also, like, and some of them they don't even have that. I mean, there's there's some stories that obviously you you can invest a little more on. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the Kate Hudson part of it might be just that her character happens to be just very sympathetic, and she's. She can pull off being, you know, just... She could then. <laughs> she still can't. I have no sympathy for Kate Hudson now. You just, uh, uh, you need to watch Wish I Was Here. and That's not going to happen. <laughs> I draw a line somewhere. I, I do honestly feel bad about confusing a- Angela Featherstone for Debbie <laughs> Mazar. But, I mean, they're both perennial 90s actresses. I'm sorry. I guess. I, I One thing that I was thinking while we were watching the movie is that... Can you imagine being – and this might have happened with other movies we've done when you are the one person in the big cast that doesn't make it, mm-hmm. that doesn't become a name. Like the guy that plays – the Irish guy, Eric, right? Uh-huh. I don't know that he ever went on to do something, but I Hold mean, on, he let might me track have, his name down. He, Brian McCarty. Right. Okay. So, I mean, he might be a working actor up till now, but, you know <laughs> – when. You're put, pitted against Christina Ricci, Paul Rudd, Dave Chappelle, right? He just Casey sees, Affleck. you know, he's like the the you know 200 cigarettes. He's Ringo. <laughs> he, you know, he sees everybody's career take off, and he's like, man, I'm still like doing Law and Order, like cameos and that kind of stuff. So it, he it, went out the back door, right? And it's not, it is, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not even like he is. He does any worse in this movie than anybody else. No, you know what I mean. He he just. His performance is on the same level as pretty much everybody else. And so it's just a cruel turn of events that makes him not become a star. I think Chappelle's probably the best in this because tonally his character stays consistent where like he's also funny. Unlike yeah. unlike most of the people here, uh, either by a lack of comedic talent or just because they get really bad material. But Chappelle He's funny and he gets good lines. He made me laugh, yeah. actually. You know, he was one of the people that made me laugh. What I resent, I feel this movie fails itself because there are parts where I like genuinely buy into Courtney Love and Paul Rudd's chemistry, mm-hmm. but then they'll do something or have some dialogue exchange that just completely like eradicates it. And it's, um, like we were talking about before, Courtney Love is proven she can be not only in good movies, but she can be good. Right. And, I think it's just. Well, I don't think she's bad here. I just think that she's just spinning her wheels like everybody else. Yeah, and and that like just... the story between the two, it it literally repeats itself. Right, like it starts and then stops and then repeats itself, and um, it almost feels like every time that we got back to a story to one of the subplots, they feel the need to recap where they were, which is like you don't need to do that. It's a movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like last week in Two Hundred Cigarettes. No, it's all happening right now. It is just interesting with this movie in general because, um, yes, Kathy, we do have people that listen to our podcast. And some that do asked me what our next one was going to be. And then um, TJ uh-huh. and my friend that watched the podcast or the movie with us, excuse me, um, had never heard of this. And we were like naming the cast to him. They're like, what? This is a movie that's real? <laughs> and, you know, I think it's because those MTV movies, man. They. Like the hit sun burned out too bright. But, you know, if you say Joe's apartment, everybody knows Joe's apartment. Oh, of course. That but was... you say 200 cigarettes, and it's like, what? Well, because Joe's apartment, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to those who I may offend, but it's not like that was gone with the wind. And <laughs> there was so much hinged on that being MTV's first movie, and it did not do well in any aspect. Um, but, yeah, this is – okay, would you say this is bad? 
Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, this is one of those times where I'm actually I'm fine with the Rotten Tomatoes uh, uh, score or, or the, the imply the implication that it's a bad movie because it's at twenty six percent. Does it surprise you that the writer and director never did anything else? Really? It. You know. I mean, if it's, you're if you're just judging their work by this movie, then you're like, okay, yeah, you know. But there's also. I don't know. Maybe they're really talented people that found themselves in a really shitty situation with MTV. <laughs> so the director, Risa Garcia, was a casting director for the majority of her career. That's how she gets like all those names. As, that, that's the thing. Like That's the big thing with me with this movie is mentally it's so hard, even though I know it's from 20 years ago, to put myself there and think that a movie with this kind of star power – like we were just joking about the opening scene of this film – is Paul Rudd, Courtney Love, and Dave Chappelle in a cab, and they're all three interacting, and Julio said, imagine how much it would cost to redo that scene today. Right. Do you, it, and how much better would it be? Because I would like to think that they've all grown as performers to where they – and, you know, they have more star power. It could be, like, to, all improv. Right, right. And it would be – it would just be quick. It wouldn't – you know, they wouldn't put up with, with any bullshit demands from either the producers or the screenwriters or whatever. They just uh, – they just make it work better, I think. I would like to think that, that that would be the case. Just reading the cast like we have and thinking of $6 million, it's like, I, I don't know. But um, can you, I mean, this is a remake just crying to, to, be, oh, to yeah. be made, you know, but with the same cast. But it's this funny because this doesn't have the type of following like Empire Records or like one of those 90s movies does. Well, because it's not as good as Empire Records. Well, done. <laughs> few, few things are in this world, but um, – I, I don't know. That's to me. That's why it's just fascinating. I remember finding um, the reason I know about this movie was because I found a VHS copy of it in a Dollar General for two bucks, and I was like, "Oh, this looks interesting." And it had the MTV logo on it, and I was probably fifteen. So it was a Dollar General, but they charge you two dollars for it. Okay, a Dollar General is not the same thing as Dollar Tree. I don't know. Okay, I, that's just such an American thing. Yeah. If you if your name is Dollar General, then you know, it's Dollar. Singular. Okay. Well, that's unfortunate because you can, you should never underestimate the uh, DVD bin at a Dollar General. I have come out with many a great find because basically they just get like uh, many finds that have been featured in this show. <laughs> no, no, not yet at least. But um, they basically uh, overstock in liquidation. They just mm. send out to there and they're unused DVDs for like two bucks. I got Beavis and Butthead to America for like eighty cents one time. So, uh, anyway, 80 cent general. <laughs> that's it. It's not all a dollar. Sometimes <laughs> you go under. Um, this is a remake that I'm surprised no one's attempted to do so far. Well, I mean, you could argue that New Year's Day is that, sort of, you know, that's it's that gimmick. It's like we work together on these things, Julio, because <laughs> that was my next question. Do you, uh, for a gimmick film based around a holiday, um, would you prefer to see something like this that tries to tell or do its own thing? Because it doesn't try to tell its own story. It's a lot of different stories. Do you think this is more effective or more enjoyable than uh, your generic New Year's Eve movie like New Year's Eve? Uh, well, I haven't seen New Year's Eve. I don't need to, though. I've seen the trailers. <laughs> or like <laughs> Valentine's Day or like, you know. The... Uh, I'm trying to remember which one of those I've seen that that I could like speak with some sort of authority. Uh but in the, I mean, I would I would prefer a good version of this of Two Hundred Cigarettes over what I think would be the best version of something like New Year's Day. Uh, New Year's Day seems pretty sentimental. 
Uh, at least that's what, very contrived. Right? Isn't De Niro dying and Halle Berry's taking care of him? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he wants to see fireworks, so she takes his bed up to the roof of the hospital. Yeah, I mean, uh, no. Uh, this, I just, I don't think, and this is 100% on the writer. I don't think the dialogue is good no. at all. Not for this kind of very dialogue-driven uh, movie. You know, it's it's all conversations. It's really like people sitting down and having a conversation. Tarantino-esque. It, fuck that. That's you know you don't have the Tarantino flair or the Cameron Crowe flair or whatever you know people that are good with dialogue that's what you need and that, that doesn't work here. Uh, so if you had somebody that had snappy dialogue, yeah, this kind of movie, you know. But even then, I mean, I don't know why is it set in the '80s other than the soundtrack? Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember critics asking that about Take Me Home Tonight, which we loved. Take Me Home Tonight feels like an '80s movie. Yeah. There's Take cocaine home everywhere. Fucking awesome, <laughs> right? Yes. Cocaine everywhere. Yeah. Where's the cocaine here? There's no cocaine, and it's an R-rated movie, so there's no reason for it to not be there. No cocaine, no hookers. There is like one transvestite, I think, that walks by, and uh, or no, Which, shows up in the pictures at the end, and that's like one of those unfortunate like, let's date this movie, because uh, Chappelle on his voiceover says something about like, oh, that was like a really ugly woman. Because she had a penis well, that, or something. That was kind of foreshadowing of uh, the Chappelle show when they do the Prince thing, where it's like the weird thing was in the '80s, the guy who looked the most like a bitch was getting all the women. <laughs> uh, what was the line that Courtney Love had at the beginning that aged terribly? Oh man, I don't remember. It was it. It was like it was right after Paul Rudd asks, says, "I'm going to commit suicide. Do you want to share a cab?" It, oh, and then she said, "And get." super drunk and not wake up next to a stranger tomorrow it's like yeah different times um yeah i i think that you can make a movie because i know that new year's day unless the trailer is completely misleading is not about the anxiety that uh people have to to have a blast on new year's eve and i i think that this movie was trying to be about that somewhat this movie fails, but if you made a movie about that that succeeded, I would take it over a movie like New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that is a very true thing. I mean, I've experienced it. I imagine a lot of people that have that it's December 31st and it's coming down to a wire and you don't know which party you're going to or you don't know if the party you're going to is going to be good mm-hmm. or you don't know if the people you're hanging out with are going to be fun. Uh, and there's there's a lot of pressure, especially when you're in your mid-20s, I would say – to really have the best time possible mm-hmm. come midnight, and uh, and so that kind of pressure can lead to a lot of fun in a movie. Yeah, it didn't in this case, but I think that that's where they were going for. And I would like to see a movie that does that uh, more successfully. I appreciate you reference the writing because that's um, you know as a lifelong fan of wrestling and uh, when you can tell written dialogue in wrestling, the things always like these guys have never talked to a woman or know how women talk <laughs> with this movie. It was, it really felt like, and you know, Shane Larson, I apologize because they never wrote anything else, but um, just intimate interactions. It was, yeah. Like the whole running thing with Paul Rudd and Courtney love is the, I dare you to fuck me line, which is not really something anyone's going to say given any appropriate scenario. It it just it all feels very stagey, and uh, but I think one of the reasons the conversations don't flow naturally is because they keep having to stall. You know, they keep having to stretch the 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 situation until the end of the movie. That's true, but what that leads to is I, I don't know if you were being genuine like I was in the first portion of the podcast. 
that is why the part with Chappelle telling the story about his friend that that's like the best part of the movie. It it sounds real because it sounds real, and <laughs> yeah. he delivers it really well. And it's uh, give it's like the movie built to that moment because right. it, it was the only thing that made any fucking sense in the whole movie. What's funny, I think that Chappelle might benefit also from the fact that he doesn't have a story. Mm-hmm. So anytime he comes in, he doesn't have to stretch anything out. He just comes in and does his bit. And kind of like Ben Affleck, he's just this big nerdy right. dude. Ben Affleck. For I, I, I did. I was halfway serious in Contrarian's Corner when I said that he's just really bland here. But it, I don't think it's his fault. I don't think the movie gives him anything to do. He's just he, a big dork, like his dancing. And right. The, yeah. He gets one scene where he actually you know, gets to act, which is when he's interacting with the two girls and, mm-hmm. and reveals that he's a dork. Not and, Debbie Mazar. Yes, not Debbie Mazar and uh, the other black character in the movie. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, she in, in that scene, he's fine. And, and yeah, he doesn't have anything else to do other than... But he's just like a prop in this mm-hmm. movie, so it's it's not the same as with Chappelle, where he actually has a character apparently that's been developed. You just don't notice it until the end. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think in the end, all I can really say about this is, uh, it's much more fascinating to watch now probably than it would have been at the time. Right. You can look back and. See, because I, it's not a movie where you can say, "Hey, that person went on to be famous." This is a shitty movie. It's like, "Hey, all these people <laughs> mostly went on to be famous, and this is a except shitty movie." Except for the Irish guy yeah. and uh, a couple other people. Yeah, uh, I did read. Um, not to cut you off there, but last bit, there was very little uh, trivia I could find on this through IMDb or just general sources. Again, it's a bonus episode, so the deep dive is pretty minimal, but. Uh, the Kate Hudson character was supposed to be Jenny McCarthy, which I don't think would have worked at all. Oh, no, 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 no. There is, uh, you may have your problems with Kate Hudson more than I do, but I think that she has an inherent sweetness, at least in this movie, that I can't imagine Jenny McCarthy capturing. Uh, I could be wrong. I mean, you know, it's not like I've seen Jenny McCarthy on a whole lot of things other than, you know, her protests against vaccination. (laughs) She'd drop her lipstick in the sink and start screaming about... If I hadn't vaccinated my kids, uh, but th- I think Kay Hudson is one of Kay Hudson is one of the highlights in this movie. She is, she's great, and you know, and Chappelle is the other one. Kate Hudson, I think, I just have an eternal grudge towards because I feel like like she betrayed you when she didn't follow up Almost Famous with more stuff of that caliber. No, because I will never, I can never figure out if Cameron Crowe is that good of a director or she really had that in her. I think she she has to do more of that. I think she does, and uh, it, this is real talk. So yeah, trust me when I tell you. Wish <laughs> I, w- wish I was here. One is better than Garden State. Two oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Liam Gallagher, fucking whoopee. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I went into it expecting the worst. You know, I, I had no indication that Zach uh, Braff. Braff had grown as Not a director. Novak. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, but it has. I don't think it's don't, a. Don't call him a fucking director, dude. I think that you can call yourself a director. Uh, in this case specifically, because he definitely he has a style. It may be a style that makes you grind your teeth, but he he does have a style. And, and the most fascinating part is that you can see that style uh, growing, like maturing. It, when I watch Wish I Was Here. Uh, it really felt like, oh, this is made by the same guy that did Garden State, but he kind of learned a few things, right? And, uh, uh, but of course, like I said on my Letterboxd review, I might hate it. 
in a few years, the same way that I hate Garden State now, considering mm-hmm. how much I love Garden State when it came out. But the point of all this is that Kate Hudson is really good in it. And uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen her be, like, really good in other stuff, too. I've never, you know, she has, but she's much like Matthew McConaughey. I mean, in, in it comes to mind oh, well, because of the... The pendulum hasn't <laughs> swung back for Kate Hudson yet like it did with Mahay. But it could... At some point in Nakara's career, you could have asked the same question. Oh, I you did. Know, right. Was it just that the right director had bringing, was bringing a performance out of him and then he's really not much more than, you know, a pretty face without the right director, you know, because he was just kind of like he was coasting dead. along. I had him dead to rights after We Are Marshall. Man, boy, <laughs> was I wrong. <laughs> Same thing. I mean, you know, for one reason or another, Kate Hudson has just hasn't picked like any any movies that, in my opinion, have allowed her to blossom in a way. You know, the way the McConaughey you could say, oh well, then he gave us this whole other yeah. side of his, himself. The difference was with McConaughey; he never did anything that uh, Kate Hudson is still nearly twenty years later writing off Goodwill from Almost Famous. That's kind of like uh, with me, at least. She might have some gems in her filmography that we're just not aware of. You know, I the, feel like I tried to watch a lot of things with her after that, and eventually just got really jaded on it. But but you know, you can even say that about Affleck too. Like speaking of another co-star of hers, Ben or Casey, Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck. Uh, I don't know, dude. I still he as an actor, I, I'm just not 100 percent sold. On him. Yeah, he mumbles a lot, and that gets on my nerves. <laughs> he even mumbled in this one, so it's not like an old age affectation. He he used to do it 20 years ago. Uh, he. I don't know. <laughs> that closing shot of I'm still here. But that's him as a director. As a director that I'm That's true. That, that that's unfair. That's the yeah. first thing that comes to mind when I hear that and like any shit talk I have for Ben Affleck, him as a director, magnifique. Right. But but him as an actor, I mean, now he's a hundred percent more respected than he was ten years ago, fifteen years ago, when everybody could have just said, Oh, was it just a specific director that got something out of him or was it why was he making movies like forces of nature or uh reindeer games or whatever whoa 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 whoa, whoa. <laughs> which we love yeah but, uh, <laughs> it ranks amongst charlie's theron's finer moments uh, not according to charlie's theron no uh but but yeah you know so okay. i think she's she's just confused uh you could say you know in a few years, you could be saying the same about Kate Hudson, and then it's just like there's a chunk of her filmography that you just difference look is back. it took a lot longer to get to the Kate. If that happens, it got took a lot longer. I don't know. Like I said, do we, there may be some indie films in her filmography that we're just not familiar with. I still, it, it, when I do talk about her, I feel like that Chappelle skit where he's trying to defend Michael Jackson. He's just like he made Thriller, <laughs> Thriller, and I, I always do that. Like almost famous. Like she's so fucking good in that. And even here, the whole point of this conversation about 200 cigarettes, she is probably, besides Chappelle, start to finish the best performance in this. Yeah, she's the, I, the funniest, I guess. Uh, she does pull off a, a pratfall. Well, I, I'm trying to think of what else made me laugh. And I, what I laughed. We did not. That's right. We did not have any like real laughing moments. No, the, the one genuine laugh that I got was the comeuppance to the Jay Moore character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess because at that point, I wasn't even thinking about it. So. It was a surprise when Christina Ricci just comes up from behind. And uh, and two, just the fact that the reveal that she is underage, inappropriate as that may be. I mean, it just seemed so... At that point, it fit in line with everything. Right. And it's just appropriate and appropriate to that character. Yeah. Uh, so, and that is a good reveal. She's like, and then the spring can come to my prom. Yeah. That, that was funny. Uh, 
So that I, I laughed at that moment, and then I laughed a couple of like Kate Hudson things that she did when she falls, her fall into the dog shit. It's pretty epic. Yeah, you see her legs fly up. Uh, yeah, this was way worse than I remembered. Um, <laughs> it was one of those. Yeah, uh, truthfully speaking, everything with Dave Chappelle I really enjoyed, um, just because I think he's a very charismatic performer. And then also, like we were saying just a few minutes ago, uh, he's the only person that really gets to just be and isn't like wrangled in by any of these convoluted, unnecessary, repetitive series of dialogues or storylines. Um, and then, yeah, it really does scream 1997 MTV. Just kind of like the whole... I love the idea of Janine Garofalo being the grizzled vet at the time <laughs> that just had to make the run-in. And, you know, they say, hey, I'm still here. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, I, I don't remember if it was a quote that I read, but basically they're like, you know, you just put a bunch of pretty faces there and, mm -hmm. and then it's like nothing else matters. But obviously that's not the case. And I did love, uh, because time period wise, yeah, Elvis Costello would have been a big deal at that point in time. But. They did nothing to make him look like 1980s Elvis <laughs> Costello and not 1998 Elvis Costello. I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Why? Why would they say it? Well, I guess I said that before. Like, I guess it's because of the soundtrack. Because I really the 80s setting. It's just puzzling time period. The, but why? Uh, because the turn of the millennium was coming, and you know, everyone was looking to that kind of shit. Matrix, MTV's whole thing too. Like. You don't remember? Were you, no, you weren't here. No, for no for the end of the millennium. No, that was still in Peru. Turn of the millennium is how we refer to it here in America. Uh, no, yeah, but it, it could have been. A lot of people thought that it was the end of the world. Sir. Yeah, exactly. It was all very. You know, I can see where they thought this was going to be a good idea of like, <laughs> hey, nostalgia. You know, all this shit, Pepsi, Coke, all marketing campaigns were all geared towards like the future type stuff. So I could see where they thought it was going to be a good idea until you actually factor in that this story could happen. Anywhere, yeah, at any point in time, and still not be good. But even uh, the point I made in Contrarian's Corner, uh, obviously it's not true, but that would have made a cool angle if they'd gone for it, which is to show that back in the 80s, people had the same anxiety, the same issues as people in the current time, you know, in the 90s, in the late 90s or whatever. Yeah. But that's not really the point. I mean, that's something that you can pull out of it if you're re trying really hard. But it's not like the movie does anything to uh, to really tie that together to tell you, you know, we're all the same no matter the decade. It's not. So I feel like we've brought up Empire Records a lot during this. But I think that's probably in terms of especially what we've covered on this podcast, the quickest thing we could say, hey, here's an example of how to do this well. Uh, in terms of not, and, not that Rotten Tomatoes will agree. No, 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 no. And again, my love of Empire Records aside, that's certainly not a movie that fucking changed the wheel. At the same time, you know, you have this cast and uh, Empire Records is similar to these people that went on to be a lot more famous than they were then. You know, you want to do this big ensemble cast, tell the story that takes place over the course of fucking less than 12 hours. You know, you can do it with. Uh, I think what you said really. Uh, kind of put a light bulb off over my head. That's what doesn't work is the dialogue is just shit. None of the dialogue makes sense, and uh, it's not that it doesn't make sense. I should say it's more just it doesn't sound natural. It doesn't right? It doesn't work, and it's not funny. So. And, and like no characters are different. Every character speaks exactly the same way. Yeah, except for Chappelle. 
he's the conscience. Yep. I, I want to believe even at that point he was just like, nah, man, I'm going to do my own thing. <laughs> he pulled a Benicio Del Toro. <laughs> um, so that was 200 cigarettes. Do you have anything to add before we move along here? I think we've we've said more than enough. Oh, yeah. We've devoted more time to this movie than it deserved, really. <laughs> so 200 cigarettes. Uh, more like 50 cigarettes. <laughs> bringing us into the new year, into 2018. Um, now for plugs, I, uh, we have, um, a bit of a convoluted recording schedule coming up. We later this month, uh, or later in January, we're still in December as we record this, we're going to be recording American hustle with Chaz. As we mentioned, uh, we had to push that back, um, just due to scheduling conflicts. I wanted to. I want to save a uh, last Jedi discussion for when we have Chaz on. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Then. Then no last Jedi discussion. Other yet. than Julio and I will, I believe we both loved it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We exchanged a few a few comments. Yeah. When I first got here, we just kind of both dropped the bags and said, "Let's get down to business, gentlemen." Uh, so we'll we'll save some last Jedi discussion for when we have Chaz on the air. Uh, before that, that's going to be a little bit down the road, though. Uh, we got two episodes you're going to hear before then. Uh, we're going to do Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, <laughs> By my <laughs> my favorite director, Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson finally makes it to the podcast despite Alex's resistance. Kicking and screaming being dragged into this one. Um, and then our negative. Oh, what did we settle on? Oh, shit. Shit. I have it here. Hang on. And then our green splotch. Oh, Righteous Kill. Yes. I had referenced Heat in uh, hashtag CC. And once more, Pacino and De Niro will be on the screen sharing it again, uh, this time with uh, Curtis Jackson, 50 Cent. <laughs> Carla Gugino? She's a... She's oh, a she is, main, yeah. Yeah. But outside of that, I mean, we just recorded last week, so anything I plugged, I, I don't have anything new to plug, do you? Well, I was going to talk about Last Jedi, but I guess I can't now. <laughs> uh, dude, I'll plug my... Just, I'm just Chaz at home, just <laughs> ferociously writing notes. Uh, I will plug my Xbox One, because I, I finally, I got my... Oh, uh, will you? Oh, yes. I plug it every night. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I finally got to play Guitar Hero Live uh earlier today and uh it is amazing i had a lot of fun i anybody that knows me that's known me for a while knows that i'm a big guitar hero slash rock band fan and mm -hmm. finally got a an xbox one and a, obviously i bought two games injustice 2 which is also great mm -hmm. and uh and guitar hero live and i've been waiting to play guitar hero live because uh my fiance wanted to be there when i played for the first time uh and so she got to see me like really geek out with it. It's the it's it's literally, and I think I tweeted it. I it's like learning to play from the scratch again because the <laughs> guitar is different. So instead of having five buttons that go all across, you have three buttons, but each button has uh, an upper and a lower button in Jesus. it. Jesus. So yeah, the combinations are pretty messed up when, once you get into the harder songs. Um, but it was a lot of fun and. Uh, and really, the entire time I've been watching 200 Cigarettes with you, I was just thinking of getting back to the apartment and playing. <laughs> <laughs> Already but, checked out. Uh, but no, great, great uh, game. A lot of fun. Uh, I'm hoping to get a PS4 for Christmas with uh, Friday the 13th. So. Oh, dude. Yeah. If that happens, we are playing. I will, I will come over. <laughs> we'll come to record a bonus episode. <laughs> uh, we'll just screen it on uh, Twitch. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Uh, do you have a plug? 
No. You have plugged Good Time for the third time yeah, <laughs> in as many episodes. Go watch Good Time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I don't think I have anything. Yeah. Um, no. Well, your your New Year's Eve party obviously is done by now, but uh, it doesn't need to be a New Year's Eve party for you to play uh, the Festive Years music. Hey! hey. That was a good one. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Festive Years, they open and close most of our shows. You don't need to just set this in the 80s for no reason to listen to the, the Festive Years. They're timeless. <laughs> there you go. Uh, iTunes, Bandcamp, we're still waiting to hear back about their new album, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, as always for our lineal episodes, as well as our bonus episodes, we always appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, we will be back for fantastic Mr. Fox. Which... Yeah. In the meantime, tell us your, uh, your stories, your New Year's Eve stories, uh, that are movie related. Don't tell us about your life. And honestly, um, if you're listening to this and you really love 200 cigarettes, please detailed ledgers of why this is a good film. We are the contrarians at gmail.com. That's the email address. And uh, yeah, I mean, I really, it could boil down to something as simple as, hey, I found it funny. And mm-hmm. then I don't know how you argue against that. That's, it, that's it, fair. It, somebody's like, everybody was funny except Chappelle. <laughs> and it's like, I, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're wrong, but all right. Uh, but yeah, all that being said, Julio, happy new year. Happy new year. 2018, it has to be better. <laughs> We can't do much worse. That summer of 